Good evening. My name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you, um, if you feel moved to, we need one more child care volunteer. So um, if anybody is willing to do that, um, just you can go out the back there and then the child care rooms are down on your right. Um, so we are going through the, the Gospel of John um, in this period of, uh, of Lent. And then we'll um, come to the end of it at Easter and We're now moving into a time um, which is sometimes called the upper room discourse where Jesus begins to um, talk to the disciples um, about what's going on. And um, and next week we'll actually enter into a time where he's praying to the Father, to God, um, for his disciples. But this week um, we have this interesting metaphor of the the vine and the branches. and in our house, we have, a, we have plants. We have four plants, to be exact, in our house. And um, one of them is in our front hall. And then another one is in our living room. And then the third one is in the children's bathroom. And then the final one is in our room. And the one in the front hall gets the leftover water from the children that night. So they bring their bottles down. And it's the bottle sitting there, I'll just unscrew it and pour the water in that one. So you got that one in the front hall. You've got the living room where... Uh, my son Cooper has a basketball goal set up in there, so there are always balls that are hitting that plant. So then that's the second option would be the living room plant. The children's bathroom upstairs has a plant. I have no idea what happens to that plant, but not too many good things, I would think. And then we've got one in our bedroom, and that plant uh, is, gets a lot of sun, and I water it fairly regularly. So um, imagine you're a plant, and you can choose which one to abide in. Um, that's kind of what Jesus is saying to his disciples tonight. Where do you want to abide? Where, where are you going to be um, growing? And what, where are you going to be, become healthy? And, you know, we, we need to ask ourselves, um, where do we go? Where do we abide? Where, um, where during the, the, the course of a normal day, in the course of a week, where do we make our homes? Where do we plant our roots? Because I would say that a lot of times um, we make bad choices. We choose the other three plants where they live. We, we choose dark places, uh, terrible water, danger everywhere. And Jesus says in verse 4, um, you've got to abide in me. Um, unless, um, unless you abide in me, you're not going to bear any fruit. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Obviously, um, a branch just sitting there by itself is not going to receive the nutrients that, that Vicky was praying about, the, the nutrients of love. And, and we cannot bear any fruit if we do not abide in Christ. So um, actually, there's, it's interesting. In that verse, you have two metaphors there. Um, I was always told not to mix metaphors in English class. But our Lord does that here, so I think we're going to have to go with it. But you've got the metaphor of the vine, the kind of vineyard plant metaphor on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have the abiding metaphor. And that's actually a, a metaphor that has to do with houses and staying places. So... Um, far be it for me to question uh, the creator of the universe, but um, I wouldn't have done it this way, but because he did it this way, I'm going to take those two metaphors and look at them in turn. First, the, uh, the metaphor of abiding, uh, which is a house metaphor, and then that abiding leads to the fruitfulness in the second metaphor of the vine. If you abide in me, then you're going to bear much fruit. So those two things. First of all, Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Um, this is a, a, a doctrine that is often called union with Christ. That Paul often used the little phrase in. Uh, I am in Christ, Christ is in me. 
Um, the idea is uh, he and I um, almost are like one personality. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the way Paul thought of himself, as one with the Messiah. That word abide is used mostly in Greek for staying overnight in someone's house. So in Luke chapter 8, verse 27, we read that Jesus stepped out onto the land and met a man who had demons who um, did not abide in a house but among tombs. So the man with demons in him was abiding not in a house like normal people but would abide in tombs. He would live in tombs. So um, in Luke 19, you have Zacchaeus, where Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come to me, for I must abide at your house today. So abiding, again, has to do with staying overnight in someone's house. John 440, the Samaritans came to Jesus and they asked him to abide with them. And that would have meant that he would have been staying with them that night. Uh, the, The Urban Dictionary defines the word crash as to stay at someone's house for the night. Example, dude, is it okay if I crash here? Now, you may have gotten that email from someone before, a text. Uh, Someone that you didn't necessarily think was a friend of yours, but they thought that you were a friend of theirs. And so they emailed you, you know, is it okay if I crash there for the weekend? And uh, at that point, when you get an email like that, you have a choice. You can either be irritated by that, uh, which is usually the first reaction that I have, or you can uh, begin to think of this as an honor, that this person would trust me so much that they were willing to place themselves in my hands with my sheets and my towels and the bathroom that I care for. It's really an honor, in a way, for someone to text you that and to want to abide with you. And I think that um, Christ feels that it's a great honor for us to abide with him, to entrust ourselves to his hospitality and his care, to live in his house. And, of course, it's more than crashing with him. Uh, In Psalm 23, Davis David famously says that that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's not just crashing. That's deep, deep abiding. That's what David longed for. In Psalm 27, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and inquire in his temple. So this idea of dwelling with God, of um, abiding with God, it's not new to the New Testament. The Israelites felt like the temple was the place where they would abide with God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they they were abiding with God um, when he was down there with them, walking with them in the cool of the day. So the idea of abiding with God is an ancient, ancient idea. It didn't start with Jesus. Uh, But he says in verse 9 that uh, you can can enter into this, uh, this house of love that was established before the dawn of time. That he and his father had built from beginning, from, from before the beginning. And, uh, and you, can, you can entrust yourself to his hospitality. I'm going to read verse 9 in a translation um, that I really like. Um, translator says, Just as much as the Father loved me, there, that's how much I have loved you. Make your home in this special love of mine and relax. So trust in the hospitality of Jesus and the Father. And um, take refuge from the chill of the world and the alienation of daily life and enter into the house that the Father and the Son uh, have established from before the beginning. My wife and I once visited uh, a town in, uh, in England, a famous town called Glastonbury. There's a, there's a big music festival there. And uh, we visited there on a cold day in December. And Glastonbury is the, uh, the home 
of the neo-pagan movement in England. It's where King Arthur supposedly was buried with the Holy Grail. So it's always been considered a very holy site. And we were there um, and were just intrigued by this idea of this town. So I went uh, into a bookstore there, and um, as always, I headed over to the religion section. And in that section, um, all the books that I was looking at, all of them were on New Age spirituality, every single one of them. Nothing about um, traditional religions. And so I was ready to leave, but um, I noticed there was a guy who was kind of looking through the books at me, making eye contact with me. And uh, I tried not to make eye, to- eye contact, but uh, at some point I caught his eye, unfortunately, and he said to me in a very serious tone, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm just looking at books. You know, I'm in a bookstore looking at books. And he said, no, 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 why are you here? And he narrowed his eyes like that. And uh, we left Glastonbury shortly after that. And on our way back <laughs> to our hotel, uh, the bed and breakfast we were staying in, in another town called Wells, which is a one of the most beautiful cathedrals in England, uh, we went into a pub. I think it was called The Fountain. It's a pub. I, I tried to look on a map. Um, this was a long time ago. But I think it's called The Fountain. And it's between Glastonbury and Wells. And uh, we were very cold and we were very hungry and a little scared. But as soon as we went into that pub, um, we just relaxed. It was one of the more um, powerful feelings of a place that I've ever had in my life. It was, the music was playing. I think it was folk music. It was very warm in there. There was a fire, crackling fire. The bartender was very jovial. You're kind of typical British bartender. And the people in there were fairly normal, and they were laughing, and they were just chatting. And we wanted to abide there very much. We didn't want to leave, actually. Uh, we talked over our food and beverages, and we, we did not want to go back out into the night. There was so much warmth and so much joy there. And so as I thought about that, I just thought, why do we not... Um, partake in that more often, because there's a much warmer pub than that um, that is offered to us by Christ with, with much better hospitality, and the beverages and the food there are amazing, and we go to the wrong places all the time. Um, we stay out in the cold, or we go into strange places, um, and, and I think Christ is calling us here to leave this cold world, the dehumanizing world that we live in, and to get away and abide with him. And to turn off the the screen that we're looking at, to put the phone away, uh, put down the stack of papers, the taxes you might be doing, um, leave the the children squabbling, fighting, the baby crying on the floor, and just get away. Um, You can't do that. But, you know, find a way, find a way to make it happen. But get away, take a walk, be by yourself, inhale, um, go into a closet, close the door, something, take a a bath. But we've got to be by ourselves with God. I mean, we just, again, going back to what Vicky said about the nutrients, that love is not going to be able to come into us if we're constantly distracted and busy. This is a call to get away with the Father, enter into that pub. And, um, you know, every morning and evening, it's a battle, isn't it? It's it's very hard. Even if you make a resolution to do this, um, it's very difficult. Especially in this season for me with March Madness and the temptation just to click on uh, that game. There's always a game on, even in the daytime these days. And so in, in a period like this, at least for me and other things for y'all, there, there's a deep need to abide. And we eventually left the pub that night and we walked back into our bed and breakfast. 
And uh, the lady who owned the bed and breakfast um, was very strange. We had met her earlier in the day. It was a very cold, dark, ancient house. And uh, she, was, she was an artist, and she had these kind of weird ghost-like... They were made of felt, and they kind of hung on the wall, like almost like a, a ghost, a shape of a ghost. Or a, I think she said they were spirits hanging on her dark stone walls. But um, we didn't really want to, but we, we talked to her after that experience. We went in there. We felt confident. Uh, we felt warmth. There was no fear. There was no weirdness to it. Um, and uh, in front of her, in a big, huge fire with her black dog, we, we stood and we, we talked to her for a while. And I feel like we brought some of the warmth and some of the joy into that place that, that we, we were fueled by in that pub. And so that kind of leads to the second point. By entering into the house of God and abiding with him, we actually have energy to enter into the world. We can warm ourselves there and enter into the world with love and bear fruit, which is verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And again, he's smashing together these images we don't normally associate with the other, a house and a vine. And he's saying somehow that the house and the vine go together. And again, it's not my favorite idea of doing that kind of thing, but I was thinking um, in a vineyard, if you've ever seen a vineyard, uh, what is it that is house-like about a vine and branches in a vineyard? If you go to a vineyard, um, there's often this, um, it comes up from the ground, this central stalk, and then it breaks and there's this long wooden shaft. And from that long wooden horizontal shaft, these little uh, branches come down and go up. It's really well manicured. It takes a lot of work to get one of these things going. But I think when he says vineyard vine, um, he's talking about that central shaft as a kind of a home where all the branches come into that home. Um, I think that what he's saying is that 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 branch, I mean that vine, that central stalk, um, that hub of roots, if you will, that's where all the nutrients come from. And all the branches along that vine are going to be determined by the health of that vine. If that central area gets sick and degenerates, then every single branch, every single grape will get sick. I think that's what he's saying. And so the vine is the home of the branches. And sadly, in some vineyards, if the soil is bad or um, something happened, maybe some kind of insect, those homes, those central balls upon which these shafts go out, those things can actually degenerate and uh, they can wither and rot. And oftentimes God will compare himself in the Old Testament Five or six times he does this. He, he compares himself to a, a vineyard owner, someone who plants a vineyard. And uh, that's why Jesus says in verse 1, my father is the vine dresser. His disciples would have known exactly what he's talking about. It's the, it's the ancient imagery of God, the, the vineyard owner, and then Israel, the vineyard. And sadly, in almost every one of those Old Testament references, the, the vineyard has gone bad. Jeremiah 2.21 um, I planted you as a choice vine, entirely of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Um, that's what God says to Israel. I, I planted you as this perfect soil, perfect seed. I had a fence around you. I built a watchtower. Everything was right. And yet somehow you produced bad, uh, bad branches, bad grapes, sour grapes, degenerated. And that's why Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine. I am not... The old stock of Israel, I am not the kind that has gone wrong. I am, I'm a whole new vine that has been planted. And I am like the new Israel. And from me, now that I am here, um, there is there's good stuff. There's fruit. There are good grapes that can come. If you put yourself in me, 
And that central vine, that central shaft of that wood where all the branches come from, Jesus said, if you put yourselves in me, then you're going to bear much fruit. Because I am now true, a true vine. Not a degenerated vine, but a true vine. And that's why he says, uh, whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Verse 5. And so the question is, uh, what is the fruit? And I think um, we've already answered that. The fruit is the love that Jesus brought down from above. That is the fruit that comes from abiding in him. Notice he says, as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you, verse 12. So it's, it's a different kind of love. It's the kind of love that Jesus loved them with. He modeled it. A child has a very hard time understanding what love is unless their parent models that love. And so he had to come and model the love and show human beings, this is what love looks like. Look at my interactions with all these people. That's what love is. Love one another, he says now, as I have loved you, as I have loved people. Do the same thing with one another. It's a different kind of love. It's not natural. It's not human. Which all of that natural human love tends to become sour grapes. That's, that's what happened to Israel. This is supernatural, divine love. Completely different. We read a book in seminary that's kind of required reading for, um, for many theology classes. It's uh, by a Swiss theologian named Anders Nygren. And uh, actually, I think he was Swedish. He wrote a famous book called Agape and Eros. These are two Greek words for love. There's actually four Greek words for love. There's agape, which is the word uh, for God's love. There's eros, which is erotic love, sexual love. There's philia, which is friendship love. And there's storge, which is um, the kind of love we have for our dogs, affection, our neighbors. Just something, just, just an affection there. Um, not real friendship, definitely not erotic and not agape. So there's these four kinds of love. And Nigrin is basically rolling the other three into eros. And he says that eros, and I would say that's true of philia and storge as well, that that kind of love... Is, um, is attracted to the beloved, to the object. So it's drawn in by need and desire for the object. So when you fall in love with someone, you fall in love with them, and, and uh, there's nothing supernatural about that. You're, you're falling in love with them because you're drawn to their beauty and their virtue, their goodness. So that's, that's the first kind of love. You call that eros. Uh, Nigrin says there's another kind that is totally different from that. And that only God can bring into the world. And that is love from above, that is supernatural. It is flowing from the lover. It's not drawn by the object. It's simply coming from the lover because the lover is so powerful and so creative. And so that would be loving your enemy who hates you and who is making your life miserable. Whoever that is in your life, love that comes to that person can only come from you. It can't be drawn by them. And so that is supernatural. And Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was actually really affected by that book. He read that book, and uh, he wrote this in his sermon, Strength to Love. When Jesus bids us to love our enemies, he is speaking neither of eros, nor philia, and I would add nor storge. He is speaking of agape. And I love this way he defines agape. Understanding, creative, and redemptive goodwill for all people. That's, that's the love that, that he's talking about in this passage. Um, as I have loved you, love one another. Not the kind of love that you normally associate with love. Friendship, affection, uh, erotic love. This is a love that is impossible without Christ. And that's why it says in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, obviously, you can do a lot of stuff apart from him. You can pay your bills. 
You need a sandwich. Uh, you can take a shower without him. What he's talking about here is apart from me, you cannot love. That's why you have to abide in me. Because you're not going to have the energy to love unless you keep abiding in me. And so love is impossible without Christ. And I would say that life, real life, uh, is impossible to continue without love. And that's why he says in verse 6, if you do not abide in me, you will be like a branch that withers. And you'll become so brittle that you might as well just throw it in, in the, you know, we have one of those uh, yard bins. If a branch becomes too brittle, I just crack it and throw it in the bin. You become lifeless. If you do not abide in Christ, um, the supernatural love goes away and you become lifeless. So you need this agape always filling your life. I was once talking to a guy and um, he just was just sitting there judging me. Um, I could just tell. I mean, you've probably had this happen to you before where you're in a conversation with someone and it's so awkward because they are, there's so much coming from them towards you that is just malice. And um, I could tell by his posture. I mean, I remember this because that, that doesn't leave you when you have that experience, even if it's for five or ten minutes. So I wish I could mimic his body language, but he wouldn't sit directly across from me at the booth. He turned 45 degrees. That's one sign that there's something going on. There's some kind of negative energy there. And uh, he was leaning backwards, kind of away from me, to move away from me. And uh, he, his eyebrows were very furrowed, and his, uh, his lids were narrowed. And his voice was, was very low. And um, it was very measured and quiet. And it was a kind of anger that wasn't yelling. Instead, it was that soft, almost scarier kind of anger. And when that happens, uh, love has got to be very creative. So eros and philia and storge are not going to cut it in a situation like that. And, you, and, not, and to me, at that point, uh, I was not able to love this guy. Um, but I have had experiences where I, I have actually had that happen, where I felt like a, God gave me a love that had nothing to do with them. It was entirely from me. From God, through me, blowing onto them. And uh, I have been moved at times to love someone uh, who was... Who is hurting me right there? To actually cry tears for someone who is hurting me even at that moment. That is possible. It didn't happen in that case. I just was provoking him more. Um, I was so upset with him. But it, it has happened. I think for most of us, that kind of thing has happened at times. If it hasn't happened to you, I can tell you nothing is more thrilling than that feeling of loving someone who is actually hating you. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The love with which I have loved you. Love one another. Um, it's kind of electric. Uh, he says in verse 11, I, I said this to you about, about abiding in me so that your joy may be full. And, and he says not only uh, that your joy may be full, but that your joy would be my joy. Now, what is his joy? His joy is the joy of someone who is so omnipotent and creative and powerful as a lover that it makes him big and full and grand. There's largesse coming from him to everyone he met. One commentary said this, the joy of Jesus is the joy that arises from the sense of a finished work. It is creative joy. It is like the joy of an artist. It produces a sense of unexhausted power for fresh creation. Think about love as an art form. It is the highest form of art, as something that you get to 
be imaginative about and think up ways to do where you're not just reacting, but you're actually plotting ways to love that make you very creative. Um, It is what gives people dignity who are being oppressed, uh, who are being uh, destroyed by someone in their life, some authority in their life. The power to continue to love gives someone dignity and it honors them. Um, So think about this evening or tomorrow um, as a palette, you know, and you're an artist and you get to paint an ethical masterpiece tonight and tomorrow. I mean, if if you think about it as a challenge like that, um, I I hope it makes you uh, begin to imagine ways to love people. Our, Our imaginations for loving people are not very strong. I couldn't think of many examples. Here's what I came up with. Uh, Write someone an encouraging letter. Call someone up and apologize to them. Give someone a $50 tip. Um, Put the kids to bed without holding a grudge against your spouse. Um, I wish I could make a more example. I wish we could go out in the room right now and people raise their hands and say, here's another one and here's another one. Maybe ask someone, uh, "How? give me another creative way to love. But... This way, love is not just being drawn to this, that, and the other, and you're just blown by your passions, but it's you choosing to be this powerful, creative person that chooses to love someone who is hating you. And I would say that joy uh, never comes from just that kind of uh, desire for consumption. Um, if, you know, buying the perfect shirt or eating a, a great steak, a great meal, watching a great basketball game, there's a certain excitement in that. It goes away. Not too much long afterwards, but if you produce something beautiful, that joy is really lasting. Really, really exquisite. Um, There's a senator from Nebraska named Ben, I think his last name is pronounced Sass, S-A-S-S-E. He wrote a book called The Vanishing American Adult. And he says, there is almost nothing more important that we can do for the young than convince them that production is more satisfying than consumption. I would probably put the word creation instead of production. So I'll reread that. There's almost nothing more important that you could do for your children or for anyone who's young than convince them that creating something is more satisfying than consuming something. And that would be mostly true of love. It's amazing. The the late Christopher Hitchens, who wrote uh, God is Not Great, and in many, many interviews uh, seemed this pompous, hateful, curmudgeonly guy that despised the idea of God, despised love, mocked love, was always um, acting like uh, the world was just dark and bleak, and all we could do was resign ourselves to cold fate. At his funeral, he requested that a song by Steve Winwood be played, that when I was growing up in the 80s, I just thought it was kind of a joke. But then I heard uh, the lyrics. I, I mean, I listened to the song, and I listened, heard the lyrics, it's called Higher Love by Steve Winwood. So uh, I, I never really respected this song, but when I realized that Christopher Hitchens had it played at his funeral, I wanted to look into it. And I'll just read some of the lyrics. Maybe pull it up later on your phone or your computer. Uh, Bring me a higher love. It's like a prayer. Bring me a higher love. It's, the chorus is just says that again and again. Bring me a higher love that could light up the night with my soul on fire, that could make the sun shine from pure desire. Let me feel that love come over me. Let me feel how strong it could be. I mean, it's amazing thing of Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, longing for that love to the point, to the day of his death, just longing that be true. And having said all these things about love and how great love is and how, 
and how creative it is and how you should try to be loving. Having said all those things, we've got to be honest that uh, we are not very loving people. That by nature, we have a hard time with Philia and Storge and Eros. It's hard to love your parents. It's hard to love your neighbors. It's hard to love your husband or wife. It's hard to love your children, um, your friends, much less enemies. And so when verse 10 pops up, um, some of you have such sensitive consciences that when you read verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, you just get stuck on that one word, if. I know that happens to me a lot when I'm reading the words of Jesus. I get stuck on those little words like if. And so you think to yourself, well, I must not be a Christian. Because I know that I don't keep the commandments, and so, um, you know, uh, there's no hope for me. And um, that's why we've got to end with verse 3. Because uh, in the middle of this very, very challenging ethical passage, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful moral challenge to us, um, to our ability to love. He says in verse 3, and I think Jesus was very intentional about this, he says to them, before he says all the other things, already you're clean. I'm declaring that already you're clean. I'm asking you to love. And I am saying that if you keep the commandments, you're abiding in love. That is a true statement. But before you hear all those things, listen to me, you're clean. And the word is uh, katharo in Greek. It's the, uh, the idea of a Jewish father before every meal would wash uh, his hands. And so uh, it's the word from which we get the word catharsis. When you purge something dark out of your soul by listening to some sad song or watching a tragedy, catharsis. Um, Jesus is purging that darkness. It's a cathartic moment. You are clean. Catharo. Uh, I declare that from henceforth you're clean. It's not a process he's describing. I'm cleaning you slowly. He's just making a pronouncement. To these cold and loveless souls, you're clean. It's a creative declaration from an omnipotent lover. And it's kind of like when God said, let there be light. He's just saying, because of the word I have spoken over you, because I said this to you, Clean, and just clean comes over them. They are suddenly completely loving. And so uh, if you feel a weakness in your capacity to love, and if you've been listening closely, I hope that you do. I mean, I do. A real weakness in the capacity to love. Then um, you need to hear this this statement, you are clean. John uh, 6, chapter 6, verse 56 Jesus says, the person who is feasting on my flesh and drinking my blood is 